Welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We're glad you were able to join us for this year's COVID edition of the symposium all online. And we hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. We want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K through 12 classical education by visiting the exhibitors tab and the virtual attendee hub. This lecture is entitled From Virus to Pandemic to Containment and is presented by Jean-Luc Merck, Doctor of Microbiology and Virology at Elizabeth Tveestaden Hospital in the Netherlands. We would also like to thank ESI for their sponsorship of this session. At the end of the lecture, Dr. Merck will be able to field a few questions from the audience, which can be submitted by using the Ask a Question button on your virtual attendee hub. Finding good talent is hard. Keeping good talent is even harder, but it doesn't have to be. At ESI, we make the employment process simple because we believe the right person in the right job changes lives. Hello, my name is Jean-Luc Murk. I'm a clinical virologist in a large teaching hospital in the Netherlands, in the city of Tilburg. Hello, my name is Jean-Luc Murk. I'm a clinical virologist in a large teaching hospital in the Netherlands, in the city of Tilburg. And I'm very pleased for the opportunity to give you a brief introduction in the field of clinical virology. And I would like to thank the organizers, especially Robert Jackson, for inviting me. At the outset, I want to apologize for my English. I'm not a native speaker, so you'll be, I hope you'll bear with me as I try to deliver this presentation with my probably typical Dutch accent. In the next 30 minutes, I'll give you a brief introduction of the history of virology. Then I'll explain what viruses are, how they are organized and classified. Understanding the replication cycle of viruses also explains how antiviral drugs work and why it is so difficult to develop them. In the final part of this presentation, I'll briefly discuss pandemics and how viruses can be contained. Now let's start with some history. The first human disease that is documented in historical records is, is rabies. It was described in the 23rd century BC. As you know, this is a deadly disease that is transmitted by bites from infected animals, mostly dogs. On the left lower side of this slide, you can see an image of rabies virus particles. 
The clinical presentation of this disease is still one of the most bizarre of all known diseases. The 16th century Italian physician Fracastoro described it eloquently. He wrote that the people who have this disease feel an intolerable thirst, and at the same time they shrink from water and all liquids and would rather die than drink or be brought near to water. This is a very apt description of the situation. I have added a few movies of rabies patients as supplementary material to this presentation. Another viral disease that appears in ancient history is poliomyelitis. On the left you can see an almost three and a half thousand year old image of an Egyptian doorkeeper sacrificing to his gods. He supports himself with a staff because he has a withered right leg which is thinner and shorter than the other leg. This was likely the result of an infection with poliovirus in childhood before his legs were grown to maturity. Here is a final, final example that demonstrates that viral infections plagued the ancient world. He, you can see the famous mummy from Pharaoh Ramses V. Upon close examination, the skin is marked by deep scars that are characteristic of the disease called smallpox. This was one of the deadliest diseases in the history of humanity. It had a mortality rate of about 30% and periodically swept through countries, causing terrible epidemics. The disease was eradicated in the last century and most people have forgotten how terrible this disease was. Up to 1967, this disease caused about 15 million deaths each year. Compare this to the about 2.5 million deaths due to COVID-19 in the last year. We fully owe it to vaccines that the previous three devastating viral infections, smallpox, rabies and poliomyelitis, were overcome. An interesting fact from history is that vaccines were developed even before people knew what viruses are. You've probably heard from Edward Jenner, who performed the first vaccination against smallpox in the Western world in 1796. He did not invent this technique all by himself. The principle of vaccination, at that time called variolation, was imported from Turkey to the West. In Turkey, they used fluid from blisters from smallpox patients to inoculate persons without previous contact with the disease. They did this by making a small cut in the skin and adding the blister fluid in the wound. A Dutch investigator called Geert Reinders had introduced the same techniques to protect calves from rinderpest. The British doctor Edward Jenner had the great idea not to use blister fluid from a smallpox patient because this generally also caused smallpox disease in the patient that received it and some of them even died, but he used fluid from a milkmaid who had an unharmful cowpox infection. And with this, he variolated the son of his gardener. This worked remarkably well. The cowpox virus is closely related to smallpox, but it is less harmful for humans. The immune response to this virus also protects against the related virus. So unknowingly, Jenner developed the first live viral vaccine with an unharmful virus, 
which can be compared to what we would later call an attenuated virus. Here you can see an image of the, of the blisters that are caused by cowpox. In this case, this is the hand of Sarah Nelms, the dairy maid whose pustules were used to vaccinate the boy James Phillips in 1796. It didn't take too long before some people started to protest against vaccination and ridiculed the procedure, as can be seen in this painting, which depicts vaccinated persons as being transformed into cows. Jenner's vaccine was a major breakthrough and saved countless of lives. The four people in this slide are responsible for the second breakthrough in the development of vaccines against viral diseases. They developed the vaccine to rabies virus and their vaccine could prevent disease even after a person had been infected with the virus provided it was given within a few days. Louis Pasteur and his colleagues first experimented on dogs with rabies. They isolated nervous tissue from dogs with rabies and passed them on to the next dog by directly inoculating the brains of the next dog with an infected nervous tissue. When the next dog became ill, they repeated the procedure until they obtained a virus of maximum virulence with a fixed incubation time of about 10 days. They subsequently used the dog's nervous tissue to infect rabbits, and after several rounds, rounds of rabies transmission in rabbits, they succeeded in selecting a variant that was less virulent. They harvested the spinal cords of these rabbits and let them dry. If they used this to vaccinate dogs, they could protect dogs from rabies. On the 6th of July, 1885, a nine-year-old French boy with the name Joseph Meister was brought to the attention of Louis Pasteur after he had suffered from a severe attack by a rabbit dog two days earlier. He had 14 wounds, some of them very deep, and the doctor, the boy's doctor, recognized that the patient would certainly die and urged his mother to plead with Pasteur in Paris that her son might be given his new vaccine. Pasteur consulted with his colleagues at the Academy of Sciences and later noted in an article, the death of this child appearing to be inevitable, I decided not without anxiety to try upon Joseph Meister the method which I had found constantly successful with dogs. The boy received 13 inoculations of Pasteur's vaccine over the next 10 days and survived. Within 15 months after Joseph Meister was first treated, almost 1,500 individuals had received Pasteur's rabies vaccine, and within a few years, Pasteur institutes were established all over the world. At that time, Pasteur thought he had developed a live attenuated vaccine, but the drying process had caused the virus to become inactivated, so in fact he developed the first inactivated vaccine. Nevertheless, we owe it to him his, and his colleagues that this horrible disease can now be prevented. It took a long time before scientists understood what viruses are. 
In the second half of the 19th century, the German scientist Adolf Meyer discovered that a disease in the leaves of tobacco plants was caused by an infectious, infectious agent that could be transmitted between plants by the fluid of infected leaves. He suspected the disease was caused by a tiny bacterium. The Russian biologist Ivanovsky used filters with extremely tiny pores to filter the fluid from the leaves and showed that disease transmission occurred even after filtration. It was known at the time that bacterial diseases were not transmitted after filtration. Ivanovsky, however, suspected this his filters weren't good enough and thought and still thought that a bacterium was responsible for the disease. The Dutch scientist Martinus Beyerink, who worked in the beautiful city of Delft, also worked with the tobacco mosaic infected leaves and used filters to filter the fluid. He was the first to use the word virus for the agents that could cause disease after passing through a filter. He thought the liquid itself was infectious and caused the disease. On the right side of this slide you can see an image of the real agent that causes the disease, the tobacco mosaic virus, which is a rod-shaped virus. The German bacteriologists Friedrich Löffler and Paul Frosch are in the end credited with the discovery of viruses. They studied foot and mouth disease in animals and also used different filters to characterize the disease-causing agent. They discovered that filters with the tiniest pores indeed stopped disease transmission. Thus, they could reject Beyerink's contagious fluid hypothesis and show that infectious particles that were smaller than bacteria existed. The development of the electron microscope by German scientists Ruschka and Knoll would finally make it possible to visualize viruses and to see them for what they are. In the beginning of the 20th century, developments went very rapid. In this table, you can see that within a couple of decades, many viral, viral diseases were identified, the majority being animal pathogens. And we are still discovering new viruses almost on a weekly or, or monthly basis. So what are viruses? The word virus is derived from the Latin word for poison. Historically, this word was used for disease-causing agents in general, but Beyerink used it for the first time for the non-filterable agents, his contagious fluid, or, he, as he called them, contagium vivim fluidum. Viruses are acellular infectious entities, not considered alive, and are in fact not, not much more than a package of genetic material protected by proteins. Viruses are very small compared to most bacteria, although quite recently very large viruses have been discovered that are almost as large as a small bacterium. Viruses come in many shapes and sizes. Every living species has its own viruses, so bacteria, single-celled organisms, plants, fungi, and animals all have their own viruses and have to suffer. 
In general, a virus only infects a small range of species, but some viruses are able to jump from one species to the other. Viruses always contain genetic material, which can be either DNA or RNA. They can be surrounded by a lipid membrane, then they are called envelope viruses, or by a protein layer, and then they are called non-enveloped viruses. The American scientist David Baltimore, who worked at MIT, introduced the classif classification system that is currently used for viruses. The classification is based on the genetic contents of the virus. It can consist of a regular double strand of DNA or a single strand of DNA, a double strand of RNA or a single strand of RNA. If it has a single RNA strand, it can be a strand that can be translated directly into a protein. This is called a positive sense RNA strand. Or if it first needs copying before translation into a protein can occur, it is called a negative RNA strand. Then there are viruses that start with RNA, but have DNA as intermediate before another RNA strand is produced. And finally, there are viruses that start with DNA, but use RNA as an intermediate pr to produce DNA again. As you can see, viruses can be quite complicated. Viruses cannot replicate themselves, and therefore need living cells to generate offspring. Their first step is to get into the cell. Not every cell is the same, and entry is not easy. Viruses use various methods to enter them. If the virus is inside, replication will only occur if the cell has all the right components in place and if the virus succeeds in hijacking the cell. Once this occurs, the cell is transformed into a virus-producing factory. A single cell may give rise to thousands of viral particles. In some viral diseases, viral particles are so abundant that they can be seen directly with an electron microscope. For example, if you would look at a drop of blister fluid from a patient with chickenpox, the herpes viruses are clearly visible. Or if a patient suffers from norovirus, a drop of diarrhea shows innumerable numbers of virus particles. Unfortunately, it is not that easy for many viral diseases because their numbers are too low to find them. The great advantage of the electron microscope, which is the high magnification at which it can operate, also makes it difficult to find viruses when they are not abundant. Finding your lost keys in your house can be difficult enough, but if you can only search with an enormous magnifying glass, the tasks may become nearly impossible. Finding viruses, therefore, is a lot easier when they are more abundant. Unfortunately, they cannot be grown on culture dishes like bacteria because they need living cells to replicate. In the early days of virology, infant mice or other animals were often used to identify viruses. These animals were inoculated with patient samples after those samples had been passaged through filters to filter out bacteria and other pathogens. After inoculation of the animal, they would wait and see if it became ill and what symptoms it developed. Very young animals were used because their immune systems were still immature. This would increase the number of virus particles. 
When the animal got sick, it was killed and analyzed. In this way, many viruses were identified. The use of animals was later replaced by cell cultures. On the bottom right side of this slide, you can see an example of a virus infected cell culture. In this case, monkey kidney cells called Vero cells are infected with herpes simplex virus. As you can see at the arrow, cells are rounded up and swollen compared to the surrounding uninfected cells. Uninfected cells are also visible in the image at, at the top. Different viruses have different effects on cells. On the bottom side, on the left bottom side, you see examples of those effects. These are called cytopathic effects, effects that make the cell sick. So, for example, a cell can develop inclusions. Inclusions are the result of the virus factories that are formed. Inclusions can be in the cytoplasm or in the nucleus. A cell can round up. A cell can be lysed. That means that it opens up and breaks and the contents go out. A cell can be transformed. A cell can, for example, fuse with other surrounding cells, becoming a multinucleated cell called a syncytium. Although cell cultures are still used in virology, modern diagnostic techniques focus on identification of the genetic material of viruses. Genetic material can be amplified using the polymerase chain reaction, or the genetic code of the virus can be determined by sequencing techniques. These techniques allow for rapid and very precise identification of viruses, even of unknown viruses. After this short explanation of the life cycle of viruses, it becomes more easy to understand how antiviral treatments work and why it is difficult to develop them. To defeat viruses, their replication needs to be stopped. There are many to do this. Some strategies consist of preventing the virus from entering cells. This may be done with antibodies or drugs that specifically inhibit the interaction between the virus and the cell, the so-called cell receptor. Another way to stop viral replication is to inhibit the replication of its genetic material. Some drugs interfere with the detachment from the cell of newly formed virus particles. Any step in the life cycle of a virus that can be inhibited can be exploited to develop antiviral treatments. Because nearly every virus has a unique way to infect organisms, there are no universal drugs that work against all viruses. That makes it problematic to treat viral infections because you basically need a new drug for every virus or class of viruses. In addition, mutation rates of viruses are generally so high that antiviral resistance easily develops. Because every virus or virus family needs its own antiviral drugs, we only have drugs against a handful of viruses. Now suppose you wanted to take on the challenge to develop an antiviral drug against a common cold. Then you would be confronted with the enormous amount of viruses that cause the common cold. 
So just to name a few, there are the renoviruses, of which at least 160 types exist. And then you have enteroviruses, adenoviruses, common coronaviruses, RSV, the respiratory syncytial viruses, and so forth. And influenza, of course, and still others. Because all these viruses are different and use their own pathways to infect people, there is no single compound that can address all these viruses and, and interfere with the replication of all these viruses. So it's nearly impossible to develop something against them. And even if you would have a drug that would, would say, for example, do something against a few of them, then antiviral resistance would also be a problem or could also be a problem and easily develop. Viruses can be transmitted in many ways and some viral infections are so contagious that they can cause large outbreaks, epidemics and even pandemics. This is not only a problem for humans but also for animals. Here are some images of chicken struck by fall plague virus, which is caused by an avian influenza virus. Outbreaks with this virus cause severe economic loss. There are many other viruses that hurt industries of, for example, pigs, horses, sheep, cows, and also sal salmon, oysters, and so forth. The more these animals are kept together, the larger the outbreaks, and also the larger the losses. A well-known example of a pandemic is the Spanish flu from 1918-1919. This was caused by an influenza virus. This virus wreaked havoc for two years and caused about 50 million deaths worldwide. After this, the virus didn't disappear, but became the regular influenza virus that seasonally occurred, so every winter season, uh, as, as, as usual for influenza. It is striking to look at these images because of the similarities with our current pandemic. So even then they decided that we all had to wear masks. We also see the large hole with all those patients. And I think this is actually quite smart because to care for so many people, it is more efficient to group them together in a large hole. Perhaps we could even learn from them. So how do we stop a pandemic? Well, the brief answer is, we need to stop the transmission of the virus. So how do you stop transmission? Transmission can be stopped if an infected person is not allowed to come into contact with an uninfected person. So if you place a person in quarantine, Another way to stop transmission is to stop viral replication with an antiviral drug. Finally, you can stop transmission if people are made immune to the virus, which means that the virus will not be able to infect another person. This can be done by immunization or using vaccines. A beautiful example of containment of a huge outbreak and threat was the outbreak of the first SARS virus in 2003. This virus had a mortality rate of about 10% and died in 
and rapidly spread to 30 countries in less than three months. It was contained without treatment and without vaccine, but just by tracing and isolating the victims. After containment and destruction of the original source of the virus, the virus entirely disappeared. Now, how was this achieved? Why did it work then and not with this new SARS virus that causes COVID-19? This important graph explains the differences between the first SARS virus and the cause of the current pandemic. On the y-axis, you see the basic reproduction number, which represents the average number of people that an infected person infects. As you can see, the reproduction number is likely not very different for the first and the current SARS virus. The main difference is the proportion of transmission by persons without symptoms, as depicted on the x-axis. With the first SARS virus, people generally became infectious after they had developed symptoms, and they became more infectious as symptoms progressed. This made it easy to identify infectious persons and to take measures to prevent further transmission. What makes the current pandemic so difficult to combat is the large amount of transmission that is caused by people without any symptom at all. Estimates vary between 20 and 50% and are likely about 30% on average. This implies that finding and isolating cases is going to be nearly impossible or truly requires massive testing. How viral outbreaks can be contained depends upon the transmission characteristics of the virus. For some viruses, it is enough to find the individuals that are likely infected, test them, and if they are infected, trace their contacts and isolate them. This strategy only works if the incubation time is long enough to do the testing and tracing. For influenza, this would never work because people can become ill and infectious within 24 hours of contracting the virus. This leaves no time for testing and tracing. That brings me to the second strategy, and that is vaccination. I started my presentation with three diseases that plagued humanity from ancient times, rabies, poliomyelitis, and smallpox. The viruses that cause these diseases have been contained by vaccination. Smallpox has been eradicated entirely, poliovirus has almost been eradicated, and the number of rabies virus infections has been greatly reduced. Training our immune system by vaccination is still the most promising strategy to end this COVID-19 pandemic. I hope this brief overview has given you an idea of the interesting field of virology. And this was only the tip of the iceberg. Our world contains uncountable numbers of living organisms and strange creatures. Despite their differences, they have one thing in common. They are infected by viruses. In a sense, the field of virology encompasses them all. So now you can see why there is never a dull moment for a virologist. I'd like to finish my presentation with the words of Dr. Rudolf Virchow, one of the most famous physicians of the 19th century 
and the founding father of the discipline of cellular pathology. He wrote, Between animal and human medicine there is no dividing line, nor should there be. The object, object is different, but the experience obtained constitutes the basis of all medicine. These words certainly apply to the field of virology. If we want to thrive as humans and remain healthy, the health of our environment and livestock are of the utmost importance. The viruses that plague them also affect us. Viral outbreaks often point to problems that are much larger than the virus itself. Therefore, viral outbreaks may help us discover that we need to change our ways and correct what's wrong. I thank you for your attention. Well, thank you very much for that presentation. And now we'll have uh, several minutes to field some questions from our audience. Uh, if you've not already submitted a question, you can use the ask a question button on your virtual attendee hub to do so. And we'll, we have Dr. Merck with us to try to answer those. So uh, we'll start uh, with a few questions here. Uh, first question, would you offer an explanation of the immunity training process of vaccination? Well, actually vaccination is almost, almost the same as, as contracting the disease itself. So the vaccine typically contains components of, of the pathogen. Um, so it is injected into a person or sometimes you, 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 you can sneeze it in or whatever way the vaccine is delivered. But at least it is almost the same as the pathogen. So the, the immune system really thinks that it's being infected by a virus or a bacterium and starts to uh, develop an immune response that it would also normally do with the, the, the normal virus or the bacterium. One of the main differences is that in most vaccines, they are modified in such a way that, well, for example, uh, uh, let, let me put it another way, very many viruses, including the COVID-19 virus, has ways to evade the immune system, to, to yeah, put the immune system on a wrong track, and those things have been taken out. So the immune response that is developed is most of the time a, more or less an idealized immune response uh, in the vaccine case compared to the real infection. I hope this answers the question. Okay, we have another question here. Uh, what are the benefits, if any, of using an RNA-derived vaccine as opposed to other types? Well, the nice thing about the RNA vaccines is, is that they are very clean. So, for example, um, when you get an infection with coronavirus, the coronavirus is, is a lipid, uh, lipid uh, bowl and it contains the RNA strand inside of the virus because every virus is just uh, a, a packaged genetic material. 
So what they've done with the RNA vaccines is they take only a very tiny proportion of the genetic material of the virus that you would get anyway. If you were getting infected, you would get the RNA as well, but you would get the whole package. They just take the essential part out that is essential for your immune system to develop the response to. And that's what they put in lipid vesicles. So um, I think this is a very clean system because you can produce RNA without cells. Um, it can just be in a, in a, in a test tube. You can uh, produce masses of RNA. So you do not need cell cultures to do that. For example, if you, in our yearly influenza uh, vaccines, uh, most of those influenza vaccines, at least the ones that are used in the Netherlands, are grown on chicken eggs. So they inoculate the eggs with the virus, with the influenza virus, and then the egg starts to produce a lot of influenza. They take the viruses out of the egg and then purify it, and then they make a vaccine from this. Now you can imagine if something goes wrong in this process, for example, if another virus would also enter the egg, well, then you could, could get a contaminated vaccine. Now this can never work with an RNA vaccine because they just take the same a small part of RNA and they put it into lipid vesicles. So I think this is really a good development. It's like the 21st century, uh, well, achievement, I would say. And it gives, it, it, it gives uh, clean vaccines that are not using animals or cell lines to be produced that can be easily modified. So if the virus mutates, then uh, you can easily change the RNA. And people who worry about RNA, that, that genetic material is being injected, they should realize that whenever you're infected, you're getting uh, the same genetic material, even much, much more. And when you have a live virus vaccine or another vaccine, there's also genetic material inside. I hope this answers the question. Thank you very much. Uh, next question. Do scientists have an estimation of how much time it might take to learn if vaccinated individuals can still transmit the virus to others? Yes, well, that, that is a difficult question because it's just wait and see. You need to test it. There is, there is a difficulty with respiratory viruses. And one of the reasons why they occur each year, it, it has several reasons. One of them is that the virus mutates, of course, and the second reason is that they just give superficial infections. And it is very difficult for the human body to, to prevent those superficial infections. Um, because basically you have a large surface area where an infection can occur. Um, and yeah, it's impossible for your body to maintain the highest level of, of uh, activity uh, against a certain virus because there are so many passing through. So after a while, then the, the immune system relaxes a little bit and then uh, the virus will have an opportunity. Now we have uh, vaccines against this coronavirus, of course, and uh, we know that they are quite effective, uh, but we also know that sometimes people can, uh, can still transmit even after, um, uh, after being uh, vaccinated. And one of the reasons is that it is hardly impossible for the for the immune system to sterilize to sterilize this uh, your your mucous membranes. Um, so it will always be a short period of time that you can can be infectious, I think. 
And it depends on a lot of factors how long this time will be. So people with a weaker immune system who are older or who have underlying conditions, their immune system will be less vigilant uh, than the immune system of a young, young and healthy person. So you cannot give one number to one type of person um, and you'll have to wait and see how it works out on large scales. That's a long answer, but I hope it gives you an idea uh, of how this works and what the difficulties are. Thank you. Uh, next question. Do you find that students of virology or immunology grow more afraid or less afraid of infectious disease as they learn more about them? Could a deep dive into these subjects serve to calm public fears or would we risk enhancing them? I think the, the experience is, is twofold. Most of them become less afraid. That happened with myself as well. But at the same time, you become more and more careful. So the fear is, is diminished, but the, the, uh, you become more careful. So for example, I went with my family, I went uh, on a holiday to Africa a couple of years ago and I vaccinated, I, I, I vaccinated all my kids against rabies which was not um, obligated for this, this country, but you know, I'm not going to take any risk. Whenever they see a nice dog, a stray dog, uh, no risks at all. So I, I do know where the risks are and I take precautions, but understanding the diseases and understanding how it works actually gives me less fear. Yeah. All right, thank you. Next question, uh, do you have recommendations for further reading about viruses? Um, well, I, I can recommend, first of all, uh, This Week in Virology, that's a kind of podcast. Every week they have a new, uh, a new podcast and it's very nice, they, they, invite, um, it, they invite scholars from across the United States and they talk, they discuss new things, new developments in virology. And of course, nowadays there's a lot about COVID, but they also discuss uh, things that happen in viruses, animal viruses or plant viruses, whatever is new. So that, that, that's nice. Uh, and furthermore, I would really recommend the, the book of Gina Colata. She, she wrote uh, Flu, the book Flu, about uh, the great uh, Spanish, um, in uh, 1918. That's, that's really a good book. I think these are, yeah, my primary uh, suggestions. Thank you very much. All right, our next question. What is the track record of vaccinations in dealing with virus mutations? Obviously each year the flu mutates and we need a new shot. How about other viruses, COVID? For example. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. So um, the track records is really different for, for, several, for each virus. So uh, the flu, all the vaccines against the flu are more or less, well, not too well, not too good. That's why we need, even though we develop a new flu vaccine each year, because each year it's adapted to, well, the new strain that, that should come, they do kind of prediction, they have a kind of prediction model because nobody knows which strain will, uh, will be dominant. 
And even despite these, all these efforts, then the efficacy is about on average 60%. So against this virus, it's quite difficult. Against measles, it's, it's very good because measles is also a virus that doesn't mutate as much as, as for example, uh, the flu. So the track record also depends a bit on the type of virus, how often it mutates. And for some viruses, it has not been possible to develop a good, good, good vaccine. So for example, for HIV, they've been trying this for, for 30 years and uh, well, yeah, still hasn't worked. So, but also RSV, the, the respiratory syncytial virus that is causing, well, quite a lot of damage in, in kids, in, in newborns, and also in the elderly, they've been trying to develop a vaccine for 40 years or, or more, and it still did work. So some viruses, they are quite conservative, they don't mutate that much, um, and the track record is really good, and other viruses, well, it's, it's really difficult to develop a vaccine or nearly impossible thus far. So it's difficult to say. Now with this coronavirus, um, almost all vaccines that have been developed, they just focus on generating an immune response against one single protein. And that is the outer protein, the surface protein on, on top of all these virus particles and that protein is responsible for entering a cell. And of course, it's very effective if you develop a, an immune response against this single protein, because when you have an antibody, then it, it, it will bind the protein and they cannot enter cells anymore, the virus particles. So it makes sense. But now we are seeing that when this protein mutates, then the antibodies that have been generated against this protein are, are becoming less effective. So, for example, those strains that circulate in the south, in South Africa, or or even in in Brazil, they 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 pose a challenge for for some of those vaccines, and that's because I think they only focus on one protein. So, we have vaccines that focus on more proteins than just one, um, and that could also be beneficial, so that vaccine becomes a little bit less susceptible. To, uh, to mutations from the virus. Well, we'll, ha we'll have to wait and see, but that is something that I think that is, is going to be a challenge uh, with, this, with this, this generation of vaccines. On the other hand, the RNA vaccines can be really easily adapted to new strains and probably the others also. Um, so yeah. That's another strategy, just to change your vaccine quickly and adapt it to the, the current circulating strains. But I have no single answer for this question. Well, thank you very much. That was a, that was a fantastic answer. Um, next question. Is there any difference between natural immunity and vaccinated immunity? Aha, <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a difference. Um, and it also depends, of, of course, on the strategy that the vaccine uses. So we have the so-called live vaccines. For example, they've used for polio viruses, they've used the live vaccine. There is also an inactivated vaccine, but live vaccine um, has been used across the world because it was very cheap and also quite effective in preventing disease. 
Um, the, the, the characteristic of a live vaccine is that it's basically a normal virus, uh, but only the virus doesn't make you as sick as, as the virus uh, that is really causing the disease, but it's basically a normal virus. So what happens when you have a live vaccine is that most of the time the virus spreads throughout the body. Um, and when something spreads throughout the entire body, it generates a very severe immune response because our immune systems, I wouldn't call them lazy, but they are, but the immune system is an intelligent system. So the immune system recognizes where an infection came from. So that's, it, it generates a slightly different immune response. If it came, for example, from a mucous membrane or from the skin, it, it, it changes the immune response a bit. And that makes sense, of course, because the immune system tries to prepare for the next attack. So it recognizes where the attack came from. So now people are also suggesting that we are trying to protect ourselves against COVID, but how does COVID enter the body? Not through an injection in your muscle, but it comes through inoculation through your mucous membranes. So people say that probably it would be more effective to protect yourself if you would give the vaccine just as a spray that could enter the same way as the normal vaccine enters. So they're doing experiments on that as well. Um, so there are differences, um, certain, there are certain kind of differences between vaccination generated immunity and uh, immunity through a real pathogen. Um, and it is, of course, the challenge for the vaccine developer to let the vaccine resemble uh, the, the, the true agent that causes the disease as much as possible. And not only the proteins that are inside or the genetic code, but also the way that normally the pathogen enters the body. The, the better you can resemble this, the higher the, the chances that you are going to get a very good response. Thank you very much. Um, uh, this next one's not a question, but rather just an expression of gratitude for information. An excellent presentation. <laughs> so oh, thank, thank you very you. much for that. Yeah, I was speaking a bit slow because uh, I, I had to record it and I find it quite difficult to record it. So uh, thank you for your patience with listening me speaking quite slowly. <laughs> it sounded good to me. Uh, next question, may we ask about coronavirus? What treatments have been seen as most effective? Have any measures for preventions such as vitamin D3 been validated as helpful against COVID? Um, well, the vitamins, as far as I've seen, I'm not really convinced that really helps. It, it does always help to be in a good condition, um, but, but, but no, I, I don't see uh, very much benefits. Of course, what's very promising are the antibodies, the synthetic antibodies that they, they've made and generated. And they've now seen, we've now seen studies that people who are very early after infection very early in, in within infection, when you inoculate those persons, when you give them any synthetic antibodies, then the disease can become much milder. And, and they're also looking at preventive administration of antibodies so uh, that you can even prevent disease when people come into contact. 
The whole point with antibodies is, of course, that they are degraded in your body. Even natural generated antibodies have a half-life of 21 days. So um, you need to inject people, well, regularly. Uh, so that's, that's quite, quite expensive. So actually, we, those are, are good, good drugs, very good drugs. They have cocktails of those antibodies, also quite good. There are some challenges to these antibody cocktails, and that is that mutations that arise, especially those in the South African variant, they can also escape those antibodies because an antibody just specifically binds to one spot uh, of the protein of the virus. And if that, that spot changes, then yeah, it, it won't bind anymore. But, but I, I think at this point, the antibodies are still the best, offer the best chance for, for treatment, provided you're very early, after infection. And yeah, we still have no very effective antiviral. That's, that's really sad, but we don't have it. The next level of, of types of treatment for COVID are modulators of the immune system. Because what we know happens after a while is that due to all the virus that is present, the immune system attacks and attacks so severely that the attack of the immune system damages your body more even more than the virus does. So by modifying your immune system, by slowing down the attack with dexamethasone or other drugs, then you can protect yourself as well. So we have good experience with those types of drugs as well, but that's not a real antiviral drug. That's an immune modulation, uh, modulatory drug. But I suspect that one time uh, that, that some, yeah, I had already expected that there would have been an antiviral drug, that they would have discovered one or developed one. But we have, um, we have one, of course, but it's, it's not very effective. But they will go on with this. And in the end, they will find uh, a couple of drugs or develop a couple of drugs that are effective. That happened with HIV as well, of course, um, even though that was quite difficult in the beginning. And what they learned from treatment of HIV is that if you treat with one drug, the virus will mutate and escape. So HIV can be controlled by combining at least three drugs. And then the virus has no way of escaping those three drugs or hardly a way of escaping. So in the end, this coronavirus could probably be also contained, but then you would need to have at least two or probably three drugs that act at different points in the replication cycle. And then, well, that's too much for a virus to uh, mutate around. But we are not there yet. That's very unfortunate. Thank you. Okay, I think we have time for about two more questions before we have to wrap it up. Our next question is, which vaccine, I, I assume of the existing ones, uh, would you most highly recommend against COVID? Yes, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of the RNA vaccine. So, so the vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna, I think they are, they are the, the best vaccines. This is state of the art 21st century level vaccination. Um, and I'm really fond of them. And well, we in our country have a bit of bad luck because they didn't order enough of those. So we have to do with vaccines, we have had a few of those too, uh, but the majority of the population is going to be vaccinated with, with different vaccines that that are 
far less effective um, and that will keep us in trouble, I think, for a longer time, really, unfortunately. So there is a real difference. And, and my preference goes to the RNA vaccines. Thank you. And speaking of RNA vaccines, our final question, I think, uh, do, the, do RNA vaccines function like a retrovirus? No, 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 no. A retrovirus is, is a virus that uh, consists of RNA and then has a, a protein that converts the RNA into DNA. And that DNA is inserted inside the cell, inside the nucleus, and then the virus becomes part of yourself, of your own DNA. That's what happens with HIV, for example. And we have other, uh, other viruses like that, HTLV. Um, is, is, is another example. And there's a large misconception about the RNA viruses because people tend to think that if you inject RNA, then something like that could happen as well. Uh, there are several arguments used that this could happen. And one of the arguments is that we have in our bodies a lot of viruses that we have when from birth on. Those, called, those are called endogenous retroviruses. So uh, yeah, our, our DNA, our human DNA is unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it's just a matter of fact, it's full of viruses or remnants of viruses. And we have no complaints of these viruses whatsoever. But now the idea is that probably those viruses that are already present in our body uh, could convert the RNA from the vaccine into DNA and then change and modify our, our, our genetic code. Well, first of all, if people tell this or ask this question to me, I tell them, well, think about the normal way of infecting that contains also, each normal virus contains also a lot of RNA. It's, it's identical. It's also RNA. So why would you be afraid that when you get a real life infection, this doesn't happen and why would it happen with uh, a vaccine it's just the same process so what we usually know is that when when you get an infection your body is going to recognize those cells that are infected and is going to clear those cells and that's exactly the same thing that happens when you get vaccinated the rna enters the cell and the RNA is translated into protein and the immune system says, hey, what's going on? There is an infected cell over here because I recognize that those proteins are not part of norm my normal makeup. So the immune system is going to destroy that infected cell and it's all going to be degraded and it's gone. So I do not see why the RNA of a vaccine would be treated in a different way than the RNA inside a virus particle. So I, I have no fears about this at all. Um, and well, when my, there's also no evidence, not, not a single shred of evidence that this ever has led to any conversion into DNA or whatever. But yeah, I think it's, it's a logical way of reasoning. Of course it's logical, um, but I see no, uh, no risk. All right. Thank you very much. I think that's going to bring this session to a close. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for attending this, uh, this lecture of the symposium and a very, very special thank you to Dr. Merck for, for, uh, for a fascinating lecture and uh, for sticking around and answering some questions for us. Thank you so much, Dr. Merck.
You're welcome. And good luck with virology. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope you are uh, infected by this um, topic. <laughs> uh, well, we hope everybody has a and uh, uh, please feel free to continue uh, checking out the other uh, lectures that we have on the schedule. And uh, thank you very much for attending. Have a good day.